Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. This is a free show. There's no paywall. There's none of that. It's all available to you for free, more than 600 episodes it's all free. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. Hello. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the other people podcast. Happy new year. The first official episode of the year 2020. I apologize for being a bit late in my delivery. I'm usually uh, pretty punctual in delivering a new episode every Wednesday, but I'm coming out of uh, back-to-back weeks of holiday travel, a, you know, a general state of lethargy, and I just uh, am getting my act together as we start the year. I will say, too, that there might be uh, some further discombobulation next week as I get ramped up and I get people in here to talk to me. Uh, I have to travel again this weekend sort of out of the blue. So, you know, it's just been unusually uh, volatile in terms of my uh, schedule and my, my traveling, but it should be uh, smoothing out here shortly. Uh, I have as my guest today, three uh, very gifted writers. Uh, they are Steffi Nelson, Heather John Fogarty, and Sarah Tomlinson. I feel like I need to apologize uh, out of the gates for failing to ask Heather John Fogarty about the fact that John Fogarty is part of her name. Uh, I never got to the bottom of that, but I like it. And uh, they all are contributors to an anthology called Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light. Steffi Nelson is the editor. Sarah Tomlinson, who uh, incidentally has been a guest on this program before, back in episode 359, uh, and Heather John Fogarty uh, contributed. They all contributed to this collection it is a, a bunch of essays by gifted writers uh, about Joan Didion uh, in various contexts, how her work has influenced theirs, and so on and so forth. So if you are a fan of Joan Didion, uh, this book is for you. If you're interested in Joan Didion but have not yet read her, this book is for you. And this is something that I intimated uh, to all three of my guests uh, late in our conversation. It's excellent. I read it over the holidays and loved it. It is available from uh, Rare Bird Books, or is imminently available from Rare Bird Books, and it is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com 
is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it is edited by Joey Grantham now, and it has been around for almost 15 years, I think. A long time. It has its own monthly book club. If you're interested in that, just uh, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. So uh, I had a good holiday season. I mean, as much as the travel was a bit onerous, like I don't usually travel over the holidays because I don't like traveling when everybody else travels. But uh, this year, you know, I just sort of bit the bullet. I said, okay, we're going to do it. We'll get all of uh, the family together for Christmas. We all went to, you know, uh, my sister's place. We packed it in. All the kids got to have fun together, all the cousins. And then uh, after that, we, we like we went to, you know, we went to the Midwest. We came back home for like two or three days, and then we flew back to the Midwest. So we had, you know, two trips. It was exhausting. I won't go over all the details, but um, I got to go to the Mall of America with my children, which was special. We had lunch at the Rainforest Cafe. My son had a meltdown uh, due to the uh, animatronic gorillas. We had to move tables. That kind of stuff. So I have never had, I mean, I've obviously, uh, I've never had Joan Didion on the show. I think she's a pretty hard get and is, uh, I don't know. She's not out this way all that often and she's up in age. So I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, holding my breath that I'm going to get Joan Didion on as a guest. And I think that this is the next best thing because she is obviously one of, uh, our major American writers and super influential and, uh, beloved. And I was so pleased to get a chance to talk with Steffi and with Heather and with Sarah about uh, their contributions to this anthology and to the ways in which uh, Joan Didion's work and life have influenced theirs. So uh, without any further ado, let's get to the conversation. Here I am with uh, Steffi Nelson right out of the gates. You're going to hear her first and then... Um, we then, uh, you know, we add, uh, Heather and Sarah to the mix shortly thereafter. So Steffi Nelson, Heather, John Fogarty, Sarah Tomlinson, and, uh, and myself in conversation regarding Joan Didion. The book again is called slouching towards Los Angeles living and writing by Joan Didion's light available now from rare bird books, rare bird books. I said it right. Okay, let's do this. Like, I, I did all kinds of weird things early in my career. So we're, we're really talking about me when I graduated from college. and um, That's okay. That's what I like to hear. I know, but relating it to Joan, like, it was really... You were, you were a young, aspiring journalist, read Didion. It but it wasn't, it wasn't as direct as that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I could pretend that it was, but it really wasn't. Um, I just, that, it was that book that spoke to me. That was my introduction to her. But it was really, I think, um, it happened over the course of, of years. And, you know, that was... Um, I graduated from college in 1991, moved to Los Angeles in 2005. And I was aware of her kind of exerting this, this influence on me, you know, that book was just 
on my bookshelf and, and, and a voice that had spoken to me. And, and it was, and it was in particular speaking to you with respect to California and Los Angeles. Yes. So this is, it brings, I mean, this whole, the book's called slouching towards Los Angeles. Yes. So that's obviously the focal point. I think it's fascinating how certain writers are able to, uh, get their hooks into a place and make myth out of it. And I think of like, uh, lost generation writers who made like post-war Paris or certain, you know, certain writers are associated with certain places yes. and they're in, you know, they're, they're bound and that doesn't always happen. And so I'm always, I guess I'm curious as to why, like why, jo why is Joan Didion's Los Angeles so alluring when so many writers have written about it? Uh, so many writers have written about California, but they haven't resonated the way that she has. Like, what is it in the writing? What is it in um, how she evokes this place that makes people want to pack up in New York and move west? Well, there is the famous essay, Goodbye to All That, which is her, I love you, New York, but I'm leaving. Um, and she is a native daughter of California. So she's returning home. And she's also, um, you know, her family came in the 19th century. They, they crossed over partly with the Donner Party until they, uh, you know, the group that her family was traveling with, they fo followed a map. They didn't the need each other. <laughs> the Donner Party was said, we're going to try and take this shortcut. Uh -huh. um, and that didn't work out for them. But her family made it. And so she, you know, grew up with this sort of sense of California as the promised land. Well, and also her land. Yeah. You know, because I moved here, I think we all sort of, we're all transplants. And we all came here relatively the same time, like early 21st century, mm -hmm. right? more or less. So, um, and by the way, I am sitting here with Sarah Tomlinson and Heather John Fogarty, along with Steffi, who will be, they'll be joining us momentarily. But, um, you know, I, I think that we are emblematic of the average person who lives in Southern California in that we are not native. And I think for Joan Didion, you know, if you have ancestry and you, you know, your ancestors basically settled this place, I guess it would give you a, a different relationship to it. Whereas I kind of feel like, and I've said this recently on this show and I say it over and over again in conversations with friends, as long as I've lived in Los Angeles, I still feel like I'm just passing through. I don't feel, I feel like transient here. I don't feel like I'm rooted even though I've like had my kids here and I'm raising my family here. And I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Is that some, is it, do you feel similarly or do you feel like this is your place now? Well, I've been here for 15 years and I feel like I've, I've still got some things I want to do here and some, you know, um, places that I still want to go to and experience. Um, I love it here, but I don't know. I'm getting, I'm thinking about maybe there's other places to try. Like where? Like Portland? Mexico city. Mexico city. <laughs> Why Mexico City? Um, it just feels very dynamic in the way that L.A. did to me when I first moved here. You mm -hmm. know, the art scene was just starting to really bubble up. Now it is full blown. So many galleries have moved here. So many curators and museum directors have moved here. Um, and, you know, as a journalist, a culture journalist, 
it was incredibly exciting to be here in 2005. Um, and for a long time, and it still is, but I feel like that's pretty much Mexico City feels like that. Like everyone is looking towards it. And, you know, it's, it is geographically connected to the United States. I mean, it's, it is a main influence um, well, it's, Los it's close. It's close too. I mean, you know, you can. My, I want to say, what, like a three-hour flight? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's beautiful, and the food's amazing. I've never been. You're selling it to me though, right now. You've got to go. Okay. Seriously, it's incredible. So, uh, tell me about this book and like how it was conceived. Um, did the conception of it changed as you started to receive material from your various contributors? Um, and what do you think? Um, of the book now, like as you, as you're able to like kind of evaluate it in its finished form, like, did it do what you hoped it would, or is it doing what you hoped it would do? I think it's, uh, an incredibly rich and eclectic collection. Um, the project came together. Um, it, it emerged from, uh, the Manifest Destiny Billboard Project, which was something that the arts organization Land did with the artist Zoe Crocher. And this was uh, billboard interventions across the 10 freeway over the course of some months. And it was ending up in New York. And Zoe was a good friend of mine. And we had done some projects together. Um, and I had written about her work and her work, um, really explores the mythology of Los Angeles as well. And so that was something that we bonded over and I just proposed, you know, I knew that when this project wound up in Santa Monica, that they were going to be doing events and installations. And I just thought to myself that Jones writing just gave language to this impulse to go West. And I knew what a fan I was. And I knew that many friends, fellow writers uh, were also fans. And so I just thought it would be really interesting to hear um, people's experiences told through their um, response to Joan Didion's work, you know, and I, so I, I just asked, some people, if they would be interested, land, love the idea. And, you know, it was, it's been really, the responses have been really positive across the board. It's just, um, I think in a way, you know, most of the contributors are journalists or have been journalists who have, you know, gone on to other things, but, and, 20 of the 25 contributors are women. So she is sort of, you know, she's our superstar. And being, you know, coming out of new journalism, where it was, journalists had this freedom to really do whatever they wanted to. They were kind of just really rewriting the rules and getting paid very well. So it was sort of this apex of the profession, I think. Um, yeah, that was like the glory days. You'd get paid a ton of money. Yeah, to write about, oh, I I just feel like hanging out with the Black Panthers. That would be cool, <laughs> you know? Like, let me let me go 
sit in on the trial. Um, not that that's not a challenging thing to do, but you know, it's, I, I mean, that was just one story that, that she did. Well, and I feel like new journalism too, like the permission to sort of insert yourself into the story yes. makes the work itself less rote and more interesting and more fun. I mean, and to get paid to do it, you know, and it also, I think gives you the opportunity to elevate yourself in the culture. Like if you're just reporting facts, it's a lot harder to make a name for yourself and to insert uh, personality. But I think once, you know, the journalists started being allowed to do that and there was kind of an expectation even that they were going to be part of the mix. Yes. Um, and there was a moment um, with the, the early days of the internet where I think it was pretty similar because there was just, you know, there was unlimited space and you can just write these long pieces for these really quirky pop culture sites that were very well funded. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely wrote some really wild, weird pieces and was paid very well for them. I, I almost like, can't tolerate it when the, the author of the piece is not in the piece. Hmm. That's just personal preference. But like, even in a book review, I want autobiography in a book review. If a person's reviewing a book and they're not reflect, like reflecting on how it relates to their own experience, I feel like it's missing something. Mm. But I guess, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be overly um, declarative about it. You can do great writing without having your own story in there. Yes. But I love, and I think I'm always wondering, even when I'm reading fiction, like what's going on with the person who wrote it, which is probably why I've been doing this show for like a decade. Right. Um, so uh, anyhow, I was telling you when we were chatting before coming on the air that I really feel like Joan Didion, were she to read this book, would really appreciate it. And I don't think that's necessarily always the case um, with a book like this. Where, you know, I think to read about yourself and your own work can probably be a little bit disorienting and strange. But I actually think that um, the way this book is laid out and presented in these um, relatively brief essays, um, there's a lot of love uh, and I don't know, just like earnest appreciation. And it's a very prismatic book because you have all these people talking about her work and how it has affected them uh, from a variety of, in a variety of different ways and from a variety of different perspectives. And I don't know, there, there's a sweetheart to it. And I can't imagine if she were to get her hands on it, that she wouldn't be moved by it. So that's a credit to I you. I would hope so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an homage to her, of course. And, um, and, and I wanted the pieces to be personal, you did, know, did you get, did you send her the book? No, I'm waiting for it to have a, a proper printed copy. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but you are going to send it to her. Absolutely. All right. Do you have a letter written yeah. already? Like that you're going to send along with it or? No, I don't have it written yet. Just like right on the, like the first page, like Joan. Thanks for everything. Hope this doesn't weird you out. <laughs> Love, Steffi. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, well, I'm going to bring in now uh, Heather John Fogarty and Sarah Tomlinson. Sarah, you've been on this show before. We should I make have. note of that. Yes. Um, but you guys are contributors to the collection. And I guess, Heather, I'll start with you. If you could just give your kind of origin story with Joan. Like, when did you first read her? Why do you feel like she resonated with you? Probably, like Steffi, I think it was after college that I came to the Slouching Essay Collection. But um, really, sort of before that, uh, when I read In Cold Blood um, by Capote, that's kind of when I knew I wanted to go into journalism. And like Capote, she was doing something completely exciting with with narrative and voice that was super appealing. Um, so I, that's that's probably where I first came to her. And Sarah? Well, I think I had always been kind of aware of her. I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was 16 years old. So I was always looking for especially women writers who had great style and great looks and great voice. I mean, I just wanted these mentors in the arts, but I actually brought a little time capsule with me. It's kind of embarrassing, but uh, for those listening at home, this is my copy of Joan Didion's The White Album and uh, proof that I used to be much more pretentious than I am now. I had written Sarah Tomlinson, January 2013, Brooklyn, which is apparently <laughs> when I acquired this book. But what was so interesting about finding this on my shelf before I came here today was I thought, oh, right. In January 2013, I had just sold my first memoir, which was when I came onto the show when it, that came out, um, Good Girl. And my agent literally said to me, I want you on a diet of Joan Didion, Mary Carr. I, I want thought you were going to say that your agent told you to go on a diet. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know who how is to, this monster? You know how to sell books. I mean, <laughs> that's the secret. Uh, he just said, I want you reading the best memoir writers there are. And so I had read Joan before, but never with that much intention. And so when I started thinking about what I could learn from her, of course, she has incredible style. She's just like a monster at the line level, but she's also a great thinker and she's really great at synthesizing information and saying, well, what can we take from this personal story and make it universal? And so when I sat down to write my own book, I was thinking, okay, well, primarily I'm talking about something incredibly personal, which is my relationship to my dad. But I also grew up in the Back to the Land movement in rural Maine in the 70s. Can I make that a lens through which part of the story is told? You know, I went to early college. Can that be one of the lenses? And I think I was drawn to her incredible intelligence and just this decisiveness with which she puts things down on the page. I was, I was just going to say, like, because I've been brushing up. Like, I read, I've read a lot of Joan, but, like, it's been a minute. And so I was kind of going back and rereading and... Um, like, I think this is, this is a, a through line, um, when it comes to like a lot of great writers and people who really resonate is that they sort of like take these stands on the page 
And I, I wish I could remember the line that gave me this thought that I was like, wow, damn, like she just said that. And I'm not even sure that I agree with it, but it, it just, uh, it seems impressive. And I don't know if I necessarily have that same ability. Like everything to me is gray and nuance. And I think maybe that's the, maybe that's the trick is that you just have confidence in whatever you're feeling and believing as you're writing and working on a project and you just, you just let it ride and you let people respond to it. Um, well, she very famously has said, I write to find out what I'm thinking. And she also rewrote and rewrote, like she didn't do sloppy copy, you know, no. she, she worked at it until it was refined. And the idea was like crystalline in her mind. And so that's what's on the page. So it's really like she is forming these thoughts and conveying them with, you know, just definitively. If you can feel it. I think you can feel the labor uh, when somebody's really put the work in. Uh, it shows up on the page. And I think, you know, uh, like in terms of her appeal, she's really smart. And she's a lo she, it's lovely to sort of be inside her brain and to have that kind of like elegant thinking happening and to be along for the ride. Um, I also think there's something aspirational in the lifestyle that she lived. Um, it's kind of sexy, you know, it's like Vogue photo shoots. And why are you pointing to Heather? Because that's, that's really what Heather explored in her, in her piece, like, th but through the, through Joan's recipe collection, but yeah. right. Yeah. So Heather, why don't you talk about your essay? Cause you wrote an essay about Joan as a chef. Well, as a cook and Steffi had asked me if I would write about her recipe collection, but I realized as I was looking through it, that I was recognizing moments throughout her nonfiction, um, in her recipe collection. Like, Oh, I remember that, um, creme caramel that you wrote about in, um, a year of magical thinking. And um, so I am a nerd and did deep nerd research <laughs> and had this major eBay score with a 1972 October issue of Vogue. And the photographs of the lifestyle, I mean, it's everything is so carefully curated. And I think that there's a real correlation there between how she attacks her prose, how she is as a writer so careful um, that is also true of her entertaining and her cooking. Okay. So when you say carefully curated, cause I, this is the part of me as, I don't know, like an insecure populist or like a middle-class Midwestern kid where I'm like, God, she's such an aristocrat. She is an aristocrat. She's an aristocrat. She married a guy with like a huge fortune. She never, after that, like they never really had to like, I mean, they worked to their credit. They did great work, but like, had they not? They would have been fine. They would have been fine. Um, and, and we are talking about, you know, entertaining in Brentwood in yeah. the 80s. And like Malibu. Right. And like they just live this like glamorous life. And so before I forget my question, like you, you said the word curated. I know it's a terrible word, no, but, but it's true, right? But, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like when it comes to these photo shoots, I guess it is curated. She is thinking about how she's going to be presenting herself visually like, did she get really into the weeds on like, what outfit am I going to wear? And or Do you want to know something really funny? I've done so much studying of her photographs. 
because I was trying to figure out the exact date of the photo of her um, standing in front of the Corvette at her home in um, Hollywood. Yet there is a photo of her by Jill Kremens. Kremens? Yeah, that's Kurt Vonnegut's wife. Exactly. Yeah. From Malibu, 1972, wearing the same outfit. Whoa. Well, okay, but this this fascinates me beyond Joan Didion. Like, I'm always fascinated by author photos, and whenever an author's getting press, or how an author sets up his or her website, like, how much thought goes into it? So, sometimes, you know, it'll be like an author, they want to have, like, the iconic black and white headshot that sort of looks like it can confer a certain authority. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's Mm -hmm. like very serious. They're often not making eye contact with the Mm -hmm. lens. They're often dressed in like black. Um, You know, it's usually just like from the chest up. And then other times it'll be an author who is very casual in like a t-shirt and it looks like it was maybe taken on an iPhone. But then I find myself tripping out and being like, I think this was calculated to sort of confer a certain like total lack of, you know what I'm saying? It's Mm -hmm. like, I never know, or I'm always fascinated by how people make those choices. And I guess I wonder too, like how much it matters. And it seems like with Joan, if the right, if the writing weren't excellent, none of it would matter, but it's hard to say that the visual representations haven't helped in terms of, um, helping her reach people and enhance that appeal. Am I overstating it? No. And I think, I mean, this is Sarah jumping in to say, I think that was what interested me in my piece, which was a response to on the road, which is one of her essays from the white album where she literally has her packing list. She's about to go on her first book tour and she's telling you what she's bringing along. And when I was preparing for my first book tour in the spring of 2015 is when Steffi first approached me to put together a piece for the event she was then doing. Um, And I said, oh, I'm writing about On the Road because I had been thinking about it so much. And it literally was, I'm not saying I packed exactly what Joan packed, but it was this sort of, um, it gave me a place to look and a place to like put all of my nerves towards. There was something about her transparency, even though we know it was so calculated, it was like her calculated transparency that gave me a direction at a time when even though I was, you know, an experienced writer, I had been doing journalism for years, I had written many books as a ghostwriter, it was my first book, and I was scared out of my mind. And so I'm like, Oh, well, let's see what Joan did. <laughs> okay, so let me again, I loved your essay and, and how candid you were about like, all those ambitions that you have and the hopes that you have for a book, especially it's like your your own memoir, and you're debuting. And you're like, I want the success. I want to have the Joan Didion tour. Um, a lot of people aren't willing to admit that, but I think most all of us feel that way. We love our books. We spend years on them, like laboring in solitude. And of course you want to have um, a readership. That's why you're writing the book in the first place. And I think about the way that a writer like Joan Didion presents on the page. I think about Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, is another example, any big writer, American or otherwise, but I think in particular American writer, um, I'm trying to search my mind for writers who are honest about financial struggle 
or like actually like sucking and being insecure or it's especially around money. I can't think of too many instances where somebody has been open and vulnerable about not being um, well off or not having that part of their lives in control. Like I think about Vonnegut, he was always talking about how he was fabulously well to do. And like Hemingway was always like somehow skiing and going, you know, to these fabulous restaurants. And I guess as a writer, I struggle personally with wanting to be honest, but also wanting to be appealing. And is there a way to talk about that stuff with, without like narrowing your audience significantly? Like does it do, do readers in general want to entertain that sort of stuff? Or do we want the fantasy of like the Vogue photo shoot and the Stingray Corvette and the fabulous houses all over the place and a life of general ease where like the tedium of day-to-day breadwinning is rarely talked about. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't, I think, th- I think that what we really appreciate about Joan is that she does let you in on the process and the anxieties behind it. And she lets you know, like, this is what's going on and this is what I'm trying to do, but it might not work out. And, and she does say, I want to tell you about this. Here's this story. So she really invites you in. And even though she's not, she's not bragging about everything is so, is so amazing. She's really saying, I didn't know what was going on and we didn't know what we were doing. And do you mean just in general, like with respect to their lives in California and trying to make it as writers or is there a specific essay? And well, it's, I think it's more about her mental state um, where she's like, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to make sense of this. Um, and the, the, you know, their marriage was faltering for a while. Her, she and, John Dunn, her husband. Um, yeah, it's like, and she's candid, and you yeah. feel like she's giving you. That's the thing about all these writers that you you, you do feel, you don't feel like they're they're bullshitting you. I think it's less, uh, or it's less that, and more of a, a, a sense of mine of like of uh, editorial decision making and elision and tone, because nobody wants to read somebody complaining, right? <laughs> um, True, and so like. I don't know. There's something I'm just curious about the decisions about what to leave in and what to leave out and how to couch things. Um, and I guess that's why they're who they are and why their books resonate is because they found a way to sort of thread the needle and do both at the same time. Um, do you guys have any additional thoughts on that? Am I making any kind of sense? Well, I think what was interesting to me in my piece too, and I'd be curious to know if you agree with this because you've been doing this podcast for so long and you talk to a lot of writers as their books are coming out is there was a gap of about four years between when Steffi asked me to write my essay and when I actually did. And so when I sat down to write it four years after my book had come out and essentially failed by my standards at that time, I of course had a lot more compassion for myself, like a much more realistic perspective. And I read Joan's piece again and I realized how much our culture had changed. Like it wasn't just that my book didn't do well. It was that there wasn't as much curiosity about my book. Like people really wanted to know what Joan thought. And it was partly because she was a great thinker and writer, but it was also because they really cared what writers thought at that time. Right. Like there was a huge system in place where her tour schedule was literally 
scheduled down to the quarter hour. Like she had so many photographs and interviews and TV appearances that her days were just booked. And like, can you think about, I mean, I guess there are a lot of podcasts, but even so, I mean, there's just not that much interest in writers. And of course it's gone even further where now there's an actual attack on writers and thinkers and sort of a popular move against them. Um, and that breaks my heart a little bit. Cause I, I did want Joan's life when I was younger Yeah, and I was such a, I was such a moron when I started cause I had an antiquated understanding of American literary culture and, and very little understanding of the times that I lived in. So like my business perspective on how things were going to go was based on this precedent that had absolutely no correlation to how things were in like the 21st century. And it's, I think it's only gotten more fractalized and perhaps difficult, maybe easier to get into print, but just harder to cut through. And I think people feel that not just in book world, but in all media, like there's just so many people like not everybody, but a lot of people want to make content. And if you can make a living making content, then you sort of feel like you've beat the system. It, it seems like fun right? Everybody wants to be a TV writer. Everybody wants to screen, write. Everybody wants to direct movies and whatever it is, you know, people like to make content and now you can do it more easily, but to become a Joan Didion, I don't even know. I mean, do you think it's possible to have that kind of career in this day and age? Is anybody doing it? Do you look to any like contemporary writers who have published and come of age in our time who you think are having a similar kind of career? Gia Torrentino. Is that how you say her last name? Torrentino? Yeah. Trick Mirror. Yeah. That book is so good. Yeah. Barack Obama said he read it. <laughs> right. Well, it's she Obama. Is, you know, she is compared to Joan Didion yeah. regularly. Yeah. So she's the one that you would point to. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily, but that it that is um, a very common comparison. Hmm. Heather, what do you think? Is there anybody... <clears throat> I, I, I would agree with that, but what I would say to your question initially, I think it's incredibly difficult for anyone to become a Vonnegut or a Didion today, simply because there were um, there were fewer outlets uh, available at that time, and so their voices were more amplified. Right. Perhaps. Sure. Uh, so when someone like Gia does cut through that. It's, it's, it's extra impressive. Um, given our landscape today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's also like the number of conversations I've had along these lines over the years, talking to writers, because it's like, it's on everybody's mind. Like, how do you cut through? How does this happen when somebody's book has like this magic fairy dust sprinkled on it and somehow it connects? Um, some of it is talent and hard work. Some of it is, I think some sort of cosmic magic where a writer and their particular voice and work meets the times that we live in and the cultural moment with like just precision, you know, it's like just what the culture is hungry for at that particular moment. And that can be enough to, I think, endear a writer to a big enough readership to sustain them and to help their career grow over time. But it's really hard to imagine how you game that out. You know, it either happens or it doesn't. And I don't think anybody, including, powerful publicists and Barack Obama, you know, I don't know if anybody's in complete control. Like I, I suppose if Obama really stumped for you, he could move the needle on your career. 
Um, oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it would be, it would be interesting to me to look at like book scan numbers or something and to see what happened to the titles that he listed. I'm imagining mm-hmm. they got a holiday bump, but like mm-hmm. how big was that bump? And, you know, has it really given those people like a significant and sustained, um, you know, uh, career enhancement? I feel like Lauren Groff said that Fates and Furies being listed was major for her as far as book sales and bringing her to, I mean, readers and lovers of her type of fiction knew who she was, but to, to become really mainstream, I think that he helped that. Yeah. What do you think? I do. Yeah. She's been a guest on the show like years ago. I talked to her like over the transom. Um, she was in Gainesville and, uh, I mean like right out of the gates, like Stephen King noticed her first book. I think people, like you say, people who love books and like in literary world, like knew how good she was, but, um, to have, I mean, especially with Obama, like either in office or just out of office, Mm -hmm. um, claiming that, you know, he loved your novel. It can't hurt. Right. I, I just, I want there to be some king and queen makers. I want someone to have that. I want to know where they are. Like, who are the, like, I guess Oprah can do it. Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon <laughs> is sort of becoming like an Oprah. Emma Watson. Emma Watson. Doesn't she do those like book leaves where she like, didn't you remember she was doing Emma that? Roberts. Emma Roberts. Sorry. Yeah. I got my Emma's wrong. No, but there, I want to say Emma, is Emma Watson the Harry Potter uh, actress? Yes. She was taking novels or copies of a book and like leaving them in like subway stations and creating like scavenger hunts for people. Really? I don't know. This is my life on Twitter. I see these things in passing, but <laughs> she was helping book culture. I was like applauding for my Lena computer. Dunham. Right. Mm-hmm. But does she do a book club? I think she's pretty like vocal about the books that she likes. Yeah. I mean, I guess you know anybody who's got has, a platform and is she truly have an imprint. I don't No, but uh, you know who does? Sarah Jessica Parker. Chelsea Handler. Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the... That's, I feel like that's kind of the, the way things are leaning now. It's like you have this pre-existing fame platform, and then you're able to either um, aggregate people around a book because you have your own little like online club, or you've gone into business so that the books that you publish, you know, they have a jump, like, you know, you can tweet about it and automatically give a book more exposure than it would probably get. Um, but, uh, oh God, I had something in my head. Well, I do think you raise an interesting point too about content and how like books are one form of content now. And so for a lot of these people, they're looking for the IP, you know, the intellectual property, um, Right. Like Reese is looking to, I mean, not every book that she champions becomes like a Hulu show, but, uh, some of them do like Celeste Ng, um, her book just got made into a TV show. So, um, I don't know. I have no problem with it. I'm all for people doing this. And I think it's great when people's books get made into other kinds of properties to, I think it's net positive for book world. Um, and I think everybody or most people secretly hope that if they write fiction, that it gets adapted. Right. Or nonfiction. Like, did you have that dream for your memoir? I didn't specifically for my memoir, but I have for lots of other things that I've written. Like what, ghostwriting stuff? or No, I mean, some of the ghostwriting stuff I've written has been sold to be adapted. I'm not involved in that okay. stage. But and people listening who haven't heard your episode should know that you, in addition to writing your memoir and working on your own stuff, have had a long career ghostwriting. Yeah, at this point, I've been doing it for about 11 years and have ghostwritten about 18 books. Jesus. Wow. You're industrious. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Um, and Heather, like, do you, 
Have you ever had like the dreams of being adapted? I have the dream of selling my novel that's out on submission right now. Oh. So um, let's take it one step at a time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> let's get it in print first. Right. Um, well, yeah, I forgot. I had some like great rejoinder for, what was it? Reese Witherspoon, Oprah Winfrey and needle movers. But it's like, you know, my brain is shot. I'm still not back after the holidays. I don't know. You guys seem sharp. Are you guys all good? Back. Back. Yep. Mm -hmm. Fully back? Ish. Ish. Fully back. Fully back. Okay. <laughs> I'm envious. Um, so I want to talk about Nora Ephron, like alongside Joan Didion, because they seem of a piece to me, at least, um, you know, in the way that the culture perceives of them or in the way that I imagine the culture perceives of them. Like, obviously both women, obviously like urbane, intellectual, um, they both cook. <laughs> they both cook. In like, fact, they swapped recipes. So in Nora Ephron's um, cookbook that she sent out, that she self-published and sent to a hundred friends or so, she has a recipe of Joan Didion's in there called Joan's Mexican Chicken Thing. Um, and in that's turn, what the recipe's called. Well, that's what she calls it. Okay. And then, um, and she adds her own little twist to it, where she wears surgical gloves to chop chilies, which she says she thinks is very Lady Macbeth. And then in turn, in Joan's recipe book, she has a page torn out of heartburn where she's circled um, Nora's sorrel soup. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't know what the, I don't know what line to draw between the fact that they both cook, like love to cook. Do you guys, are you guys... I am. You're a cook, but obviously. You, so I, I think about this, and th there are some sort of... Um, I was thinking about the connection with Joan, who is so so known as a recluse or very sort of socially anxious, and yet she was partying with you know rock stars and producers and movie stars. And I, I think there's a similarity there. As, as a writer, you're asking the questions, you're behind the scenes, um, and cooking allows you that control where... You're creating order of something. You can kind of hide in the kitchen. You while can hide in the kitchen. You're presenting. I'm not a good cook. It's something I wish I could do. Sarah, can you cook? I'm a pretty good cook. I just find it such a nice... It's so tactile after you've been at your computer all day. Right. It's just really great to like go smell some stuff and cut some stuff. I also am a big believer in snacking while I'm writing. And I feel like I've had some of my best breakthroughs while making snacks. Like what kind of snacks? Uh, it could be really simple. It could be a spoonful of almond butter in one hand and a spoonful of jelly in the other hand. <laughs> that's a classic. That's uh, that's Sarah's almond butter and jelly thing. <laughs> I've actually written about this for Poets and Writers magazine, so yeah, it's important. No, it's like when you're supposed to clean the house. Or no, when you're supposed to write and then you clean the house. Like I find myself inside sometimes when I'm working and I'm like suddenly focused on like trying to come up with some sort of elaborate snack it's a good distraction right are you a cook steffi i cook yeah. yeah i like healthy food so it's easier to cook it yourself i eat like see i'm not a great cook i eat the same thing over and over and over again not like the exact like not like one thing but i'm on like i have like five to ten things that i just eat i'm boring what is it right now you would be, I'm like embarrassed to even say Tell what I eat. Like, <laughs> um, like I eat a lot of lentils. <laughs> this is just making me sound like such an awful human being. I eat a lot of like leafy greens. I'm very it's healthy. It's very goop. 
Is it very goop? Kind of. This morning I retweet, because this is the thing. I, I think I actively and publicly loathe things that I also participate in, which I don't know what that says about me, but somebody was like mocking San Francisco culture in 2020. And I thought it was super funny. It was like crypto working on an app, you know, it's like this kind of like poem. And then it was like oat milk, plant-based diet. These are things that I partake right. in if I'm being honest. And yet I feel like mocking it. I don't think it's an entirely honest thing to do, I guess, is what I'm saying. No, I mean, I'm drinking a cup of coffee right now that you prepared with almond milk. Organic coffee, too. Right. <laughs> it's delicious. Yeah, I know. You know, it's just, uh, I guess sometimes I wish that I were, um, A, just a better cook. Somebody who can kind of like gracefully go into a kitchen and pull together ingredients and just whip something up that's just delicious. And So I was going to say that, you know, just this is what I learned about Joan Didion by cooking her recipes as they were written. Um, it, her, her instructions, once I got in there, like she knows a lot. She already has like a vast knowledge of cooking. She was a very um, intuitive cook. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, because I have a friend who's coming to mind in particular. He's the best chef or best like cook I know. Um, not a professional chef, but just like anytime you're at their house and you eat his food, you're like, oh my God, like everything is delicious. Somehow it's all like at the right temperature. You know, he knows how to like manage a kitchen and yet has no formal training, mm -hmm. never worked in a restaurant even, you know, like has like no line cook experience, but is self-taught. And I think it's a gift. And not only that, like we'll put stuff together that isn't from a recipe, you know, has like an intuitive understanding of how to combine ingredients. I guess that's born of like years of experience cooking, but I just think some people have that. And I guess Joan was that way. I think she was that way. Uh, and you know, when she's listing instructions for, for the, the creme caramel I mentioned earlier, she says scald milk, but how, what? Like, what temperature? How long? Um, Wait, or, scald milk? Yeah, she like, said, now, next you scald milk. And I worked at Bon Appetit magazine, and so we were very much, like, over medium-high heat for five minutes until it bubbles around the edges. Yeah. Um, but there's none of that. In her recipes, it's very it's very um, taut, is the, the way I would describe how she writes about food. Just it's done by feel. Yep. And, like, visual and sensory. Definitely. I still can't cook rice. Like in my joyless, like vegetarian lifestyle, like I cannot cook a pot of rice without get a rice cooker. I got to get a rice <laughs> cooker. That's what people tell me. I boil it. I follow the instructions and I fuck it up every time. Is this, does this resonate with anyone? I, you know, I, I, I cook quite a bit. In yeah. fact, I recently tested most of the recipes for, um, Nancy Silverton's next cookbook that's coming out oh. and I can't cook rice. You can't. No, it's very tricky. Mine always gets gluey. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm glad to hear this. Okay. It's making me feel better. There you go. It, it is a tricky thing to do, even though it's a simple For food. For some. For some. For you and I. But I think if you get a rice cooker, it's meant to solve this problem. Yes. Do you have one? No. I oh. don't burn rice. <laughs> Sarah, what's your, what's your experience with rice? <laughs> I just gave my boyfriend a rice cooker for... Christmas. Did you? Yes. How big? So the thing with me, Five I want to get one. Cups. I don't have room for one. It seems big. 
I was thinking though, like in going back to like Joan and Nora, that they were both of a different generation where people entertained a lot more and they both were like members of power couples where they were probably expected to entertain. Like how often do you have other couples over for dinner where you're expected to like just whip up a souffle or something like that? And this really was an era before like corporate sponsorship, you know, these parties that, that, Joan would host at her various homes. You know, it, today I think it would be, oh, this restaurant wants to host you, or Gucci wants to host you at this fabulous dinner that's, you know, with a party planner. State Farm Insurance wants to host a gala <laughs> event and a QA. So, but here's another, like, this is the, like, the petty, bitter part of me when I read about these people. I'm like, and I, when I read about anybody who has time on a regular basis, to cook an elaborate meal for themselves. I'm like, you have got to have an easy life. If you have two hours a day to cook dinner, right? Like I I I find it escapism though. Cause it's, it's meditative, but it's also, I'm not going to deal with that other stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to cook and chop right now. Yeah. Who needs it? It's part of the writing process too. I think, you know, I mean, that's commonly said that there are many things that writers do that are not writing, but they are part of the writing process. And Joan did write every day. Yeah, no, I mean, like the books wouldn't be there if, if, you know, you got to do the work, but even so, like, I think the average person today, who's like nine to five in it, like you might have like 20 to 30 minutes to make a meal, right? Everyone just comes home and like microwave something. And Rachel Ray is for them. Is that what she does? Yeah. The 20 minute meal. Okay. Is that a cookbook? I'm sure she has like five cookbooks. I can't remember off the top of my head, but goop is also helpful in this arena. Goop drive. Did you guys see the new logo uh, of Gwyneth Paltrow? I guess there's a new Netflix, of course, like a new Netflix show and it's Gwyneth inside of a vagina. And it says like travel to new depths. She's also wearing shoes. Okay. Inside of the vagina. Yeah. (laughs) I I, want to say this, like I reflexively recoil from her. I find the whole goop thing, I ref- but at the same time, I stand in awe. Like, <laughs> like, hey, it's a successful business. Like, I don't, it's not for me, but like, I, I'm not, I'm actually not qualified to judge it because I'm not uh, interacting with it in, in a real way. But like, as a troll, like she knows exactly how to push my buttons. And so all I can do is stand back and go like, she got me again. She knows what she's doing. She understands her audience is what I'm trying to say. Well, I think Steffi just spoke to something really true, though, too. Like, there's there was such an innocence in the past. And, like, Gwyneth is just, like, riding this wave of where our culture is going. And I also find it confusing and sometimes terrifying and also very alluring. Um, you sort of love to hate it. And you, you kind of want to know. It's like... You know, she's again, again, an aristocrat and has this like fabulous life and everything's easy. And she's like, you know, at a bazaar in Morocco and she's in Hampton. Like, I know this shit. I shouldn't know this. And yet I do. And so on some level, it must be interesting and appealing to me or I'm like hate watching or do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like the culture, um, I don't know. I feel like there's something very, very American about it. And I feel like everybody sort of wants to be that on some level. And she knows it. Well, we've also come into a time that's like super pro entrepreneur. Like you were talking about how everyone wants to make content now, but there's also this idea that if you are just working nine to five, 
you're kind of a chump that you should have a side hustle or a co-hustle or a this or a that. And so that was one of the lines in the San Francisco Twitter poem that I was taught was jam on a side hustle. <laughs> I was like, and I texted my friend. I was like, if I ever jam on a side hustle, I want you to put a bullet in my head immediately. <laughs> um, but you know, the other thing about goop and about, I guess Reese is doing this. Like we've gotten to an era in our culture, in celebrity culture where you know, it's not enough to just be uh, content creators or creative people. It's like when you get to a certain level, then you become a brand, which is another word that causes me to shudder. And I like my feelings on it are so complicated that I don't have clarity, you know? So it's like, I guess this is okay. But there's also some part of me that's like, ew, like, isn't it enough to just win an Oscar and be a great actress and get like movie roles and be fabulous in Hollywood? Now you got to like, now it's like you're a brand and you got uh fashion line and you're selling us expensive shit we don't need. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. But I would also say that that if I if I were gonna try and make a similarity between Gwyneth and Joan, which seems impossible, <laughs> right. is that same neighborhood. Same neighborhood Brentwood. Uh but also I, I think that what Goop and the people who work there do is they're really tapping into a zeitgeist um, and responding to they're creating trends, but also responding to what specifically a certain demographic of woman or reader is looking for. Whereas I think Joan was very appealing and remains very appealing for, for sort of identifying things that we didn't even know were the zeitgeist of the moment. I mean, she's, she's tapping into something. Um, how do you guys feel about how predictive her work is in retrospect? Because, you know, she was documenting, uh, 60s culture and talking about like, we, I think we talked a little bit Steffi, um, before we came on about like, you know, her appraisals of the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. I'm fonder of hippies than I think Joan was at least on the page back then. Um, and like, how do you feel like the, the work has aged and those perspectives have aged? Are there any places where you think she got it really wrong? Um, I think she, you know, as always, she steps back and observes and reports. And, you know, I think you were saying that you thought she wasn't a fan of the hippies, but I think she really recognized their power. She recognized the power of the counterculture in general, you know, and I was thinking about that word and it is, it's like a, it's a pull. It's like a gravitational pull. And she could feel that something was moving the culture and she wanted to understand it. And obviously hippies were one of those things. She went to San Francisco and she found what she found, you know, she didn't write an analysis of the hippie movement. She just went and reported on what she found in these particular pockets of San Francisco. Um, So I don't think it's, it's fair to, to say, did she get it right or wrong? It was, they were her observations. Um, She, you know, with the white album, you, you can't really say that that was predictive because that essay was published in the book, which came out in 1979. So she was really, um, you know, she had had a chance to reflect on on that time, the late 60s in Los Angeles. But 
um, you know, the darkness was, was definitely there. It hasn't changed like Golden Gate Park, at least. I feel like that little weird pocket of, of San Francisco. Well, I mean, it's changed, but I feel like that's still kind of there. I recognize when I'm reading that I'm recognizing much more contemporary experiences with that particular place. I think it's still sort of like a small locus of real, like that's where the, that's where the hippies get dark. <laughs> well, could, yeah. I mean, that's what Alicia Abbott talks about in, you know, she compares, she grew up in Haight-Ashbury and a contributor to the book. Alicia. Yes, yeah. Great yes. essay. Um, and she talks about San Francisco today and, um, you know, she, there, there are still the, the grifters, but a lot of people have been put, just pushed out entirely. First time I ever went to San Francisco on a road trip after my freshman year of college with my roommate and my good buddy from childhood, we get to San Francisco, we park our car like near Haight-Ashbury and within 15 minutes we paid like 60 bucks for a bag of oregano. True story. <laughs> Guy told us it was weed. <laughs> <laughs> just like rubes, you know, we're like, we just want to go to hate Ashbury and buy some weed. And the dude sold us $60 worth of oregano. Um, that's very San Francisco in many ways. Yeah. Right. Here's right. A, a, you know, per, perhaps a healthier option. I don't know. Um, so are there, um, any particular works for you guys of Jones that, um, you would call uh, favorite, like, do you play favorites is uh, like slouching towards Bethlehem it for you since that's the one that you came to first? I do have a, a fondness for that. Um, you know, it's all Joan. It was her first book and she wrote about being a young woman and, you know, trying to make her way in the world um, Wait, was slouching her first book or was it River Run? Well, her first nonfiction. Oh, right. Book, okay. Yes. Yeah. Run River was her first Run River, novel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I vacillate between Slouching and The White Album. They're both incredible. Sarah? It's interesting because I think part of what I get at in my essay is in really looking at her and what I admire about her writing, I realized how different I am from her. And she does have this confidence in her vision and her voice that I still lack, even though I've been published. And so I came to be a fan of her later writing, which to me, I find much more emotionally raw. I mean, obviously it's still incredibly well-crafted, but I have not read the year of magical thinking. Is, I, I've held it in my hands. I've like read like pieces of it, but I'm scared to read it. Cause it's so, um, it's like hard. It's, it's a, it's a hard read. Yeah. But it's, it's like, I'm trying to like, I got to get myself to read it, you know, to like get myself emotionally ready to, to do it, but it's, it's worth it. Everyone, yeah, everyone says it's wonderful. Um, before I forget, Heather, do you have a favorite? I do. It's, it's uh it's year of magical thinking. Okay. I love that because, um, my dad is actually a native Angelino and I love the looking back at a certain time. Um, in Los Angeles and the vacillation between present and past. And I also love um, where I was from, which is like a road trip up and down the state in, I think the fifties, fifties, sixties, just for all the California, just the snapshots. Her, the way she, It's part of her childhood as well. Yeah. Just the way she talks about what it, 
and kind of what you were saying just about counterculture and it's where she trains her lens and what she zeroes in on, I think is what makes her such a powerful writer. Yeah. Well, I, I think too, like her ability, I mean, I say this having only read like bits and pieces of it and reviews of it and heard from people who have like raved about it, but, um, not just in, uh, the year of magical thinking, but in, um, blue nights, yeah, I'm like, that, okay, yeah. that followed. Um, but also in her essays, you know, like being able to deal with incredibly difficult personal experiences and emotions on the page um, bluntly and to um, to really go there is a characteristic of like any great nonfiction writer, you know, where you go, oh, like, wow, they're just they're going there. And I think of that in correlation with her famous line about how writers are always selling somebody out. And I don't know if you guys struggle with this. Uh, you're writing a novel, Heather? I've written one. You've written one. Yes. Okay. So um, I don't know how thinly veiled it is, but at least in fiction, you have some liberty to sort of, uh, you know, be like, it's fiction. <laughs> you know, but when you're writing a memoir, you sort of have an obligation to try to reckon with things um, as bluntly as possible. So I guess I would turn to you, Sarah, um, with respect to your memoir and ask about like, the difficulties there, like worrying about, you know, whether or not you're selling somebody out or you're going to hurt somebody's feelings, I guess with Joan in the year of magical thinking, you know, she was dealing with loss. So on some level, the people that might have been bothered by it wouldn't be around, or at least, you know, John wouldn't be around to, to be bothered. Um, but do you have any struggles with that? Are you able to just let it go and put it down and let the cards fall? Or is it something you have to sort of force yourself to do? Well, I think it's interesting because at the time I was working on my memoir, I definitely was sensitive to the fact that my parents were going to be reading it. And it was a lot about um, my painful coming of age because of some decisions that they had made and um, my father's addiction to gambling and, you know, some things that were actually out of his control. Um, But I think it was actually the honesty of writers like Joan that I was aiming for. So it was sort of allowed me to have the courage to be that honest. Like, not that I ever thought she would read my book, but I wanted it to be able to sit on the shelf with hers. Like I wanted to speak back to her because she had been so important to me. And there's other writers like Patty Smith who've written so bluntly about loss and about coming of age and about wondering if you add up to all of your hopes and dreams. And so I wanted to, to put something on the shelf next to those books. And it gave me courage when I was worried that the people in my own life wouldn't like what I wrote. Yeah. Like like we all turn to like our favorite books. Um, and we think like, I just want my book to be able to sit on the shelf next to it without it being like laughed off the shelf. (laughs) Like the other, I'm imagining the other books like turning and being like, no, you know, but Um, in addition to that, like I think drawing strength and inspiration from the books that have made us want to write in the first place, um, is elemental. Like we all have that, right? Definitely. Yeah. So Joan obviously, um, inspired all of us. Mm -hmm. Are there other writers that you think of in a similar way that you would point to? I always talk about Donna Tartt. Like she was just someone I found when I was starting out as a writer, um, her first book, the secret history. And I just loved it. And it's also very dark. I was going through some dark stuff at that time at my college. And, um, 
I think she's another person who is a great writer and a great thinker. Similar aloofness. I don't mean that necessarily in a derogatory way, you know, but like there is a coolness to Joan Didion and Adana Tart. I mean, just and talk about somebody who's like curated their self-presentation, like the outfits and like the severe hair and like, it's very distinct. I wouldn't remember it otherwise, you know? Um, but maybe there's merit in that and like trying to like, I guess either cultivate that not as like a persona. Well, I mean, I guess partially as a persona, but like, um, maybe more so I'm thinking of it as like an act of discipline, um, uh, like emotional discipline. I don't know. Do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? Like maybe that is some, uh, it's a virtue that allows them to deliver on the page in the way that they do. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, at the time that I sold my memoir, the biggest memoir of that year was by this woman, Kat Marnell, who was this like kind of famously disheveled and brilliant, very brilliant magazine writer who wrote, she was like the opposite. She was totally out of control. And, um, that makes me feel good. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I do think she's a great writer. Um, but that wasn't ever what I aspired to. Yeah. I would say that, um, one of the writers who influences me most uh, is Dana Johnson, and I love her. Um, she's an L.A. writer. She's an L.A. writer. She's been on the show before. She's incredible, and like Didion, just the observations that she makes, L.A. is a character in everything she writes, and um, yeah, she's incredible. Awesome. Steffi? I... Um Beyond, I mean, my, she, she, my Steffi's so focused on I'm Joan so Didion. Focused on Joan right now. <laughs> I mean, Sarah brought up Patty Smith. You know, she was. Um, I remember when you know when I discovered her poetry and her music. Um, she just just cuts straight to the heart and has this economy of language, and so I really I love her memoirs as well. Um, she really lived like the art life too. Like I, I'll be honest. And this is characteristic of me in general. I miss so much. I I miss, like I haven't, I started listening to Patti Smith music like relatively recently. I love it. I came to it by reading just kids or mm. listening to the audio book. Um, because I like, I felt like this gap in my cultural knowledge. Um, and I have so many of those where I'm like, Oh my God, I I don't want anybody to know. (laughs) Like I'm, don't even have any like uh, frame of reference. So I'm trying to catch up. And one of the things about her um, that I love so much is that she was just like all in from the jump and never wavered. And there's a great quote that um, she has. I think she actually received advice from William Burroughs when she was young and she was asking him about, I don't know, they were talking about art and he's like, don't worry about um, getting famous or making it or being successful. He's like, just worry about building your name, do good work, build your name. And then I'm paraphrasing this. And he's like, and then that name will become its own currency. And I think that's wonderful advice, um, for a young artist. Um, you know, if you can maintain the discipline, like just keep your head down, do good work. Don't worry about the rest, uh, too much anyway. And over time, you know, with a little bit of luck, that name will become its own currency. 
Yeah, and that definitely goes counter to, you know, the way the world seems to be working these days. You know, the idea of like keeping your head down and doing the work. I mean, obviously, there are many artists and writers who are doing that. But the ones, you know, that we've been talking about who who rise up, it's like it is about, you know, being on social media and this number of followers and this brand and... Okay, so I'm going to diverge a little bit, which is the nature of this show. So don't be um, don't be concerned. <laughs> We're going to stray from Joan Didion a little bit because I think this brings up an interesting point and something that has been bothering me. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of listeners will be able to relate to. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about um, competition and competitiveness and like drive and being driven how these things have been elevated in American culture to being a virtue and how I feel uncomfortable with that a lot of the time and how I feel also alienated from it because I don't feel super driven. If I'm being honest, I don't feel super ambitious. I don't feel like a burning desire, like a burning desire to win. Like, you know how some people just, if they lose monopoly, they like tip the board over and freak out. Is that you? Okay. So I don't have this (laughs) and I feel like it might be, um, like I can be made to feel, or I can worry that it's like a really grave deficiency and it's certainly at odds with American culture. And I guess my question is like, how necessary is it? And then like, also like, is it healthy? Like what is drive? Like when we talk about drive, a lot of people who are like driven, I think are driven because of fear. It's like fear of failure fear of destitution. Um, some people are driven because they have like a higher purpose and it's like, I am driven to like save hungry children. That to me feels, um, healthier. And then we talk about competitiveness. It's like, I want to win. And a lot of people say, well, I'm only competitive with myself. I want to get the best out of myself. That seems healthier than like, I want to beat the shit out of you. (laughs) Um, but do you guys get what I'm saying? Like, I guess I, I look out at the culture and I sometimes wonder like if we're headed in the right direction or if maybe a lot of it is born of a certain misguidedness or something. Am I making any sense at all? It's been on my mind. I think, you know, there's, if you want to play the game, there is a game and it's, it's looking you know, not that appealing right now. And, but you don't have to play the game. You can, you can live your life and, and make a good name. You know, you, you, it's, it's a choice, I believe. Heather, do you have thoughts on this? I am someone who's more likely to say that I'm super competitive with myself, but in some ways that's disingenuous, right? So I used to do these spin classes and people would have their names up on the boards and I would never put my name up because I'm only competitive with myself, but then, you know, I'd be chasing them and wanting to like destroy. So I don't know. Was this at uh flywheel big time? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Funny story. I've told this story, but I'm going to tell it again just because you brought it up. <laughs> I, um, like was on my phone, which is where you could enter your name. Like you would have the app. And then if you wanted your name to go up on the screen during the class to like be in the race, you would have to like turn it on in the app. Otherwise, if you turn it off, then your name would not show up. Mine was always off, but I was like, I'm coming for you. (laughs) Okay. So I 
I probably was like, I probably ate like a weed gummy or something. And I'm sitting at home with my, I'm booking my class for the next day. And I was like, you have to put your name in. And so like, as a joke to myself, I put in total douche <laughs> and, and like, I thought it was funny at the time. And then I just, I think I just turned my phone off and forgot about it. And then the next day I'm in class, I'm the only dude in class. And so the, the board is bifurcated uh, yeah. by gender. So it's like women on one side, men on the other and, in the race. And just one total And douche. so the teacher, it's like Lacey Stone, this like famous spin teacher. She's, she's up she's there. She's a like, friend of mine. Oh, she is. Okay. Yeah. She's got like a six, but she's like the most fit woman in Los Angeles. And uh, I want to say it was her class. And she's like riding and she's like, okay, Jenny, you know, let's go. She's reading off the board and she's like, okay, total douche. <laughs> Everyone like just looks around the room and I'm on my bike just like, oh my God, I wanted to die. She would have loved that. Of course, I'm the only, you know, I, if there would have been other guys in the class, then it would have gone over. There was nowhere to hide. There was nowhere to hide. Everybody knew it was me. And I just thought it would have been funny if there would have been multiple guys in there for be like all these people like riding on their bikes, like who's total douche. <laughs> so unfortunately they knew it was me. So like, I don't know, something about the anonymity I think would have made the joke better. Sarah's looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> I just don't know how to segue elegantly from that into my competitive nature. Are you okay? So talk about it. Cause like you're a competitive person. Yes. You, you, you're the one who will throw the monopoly board across the room. If you lose. Yes. I think it's because I'm a perfectionist. And so I like to be the best or to be perfect. But I do also think like it takes a kind of madness to be focused on something almost exclusively, even when it's not going well and still be aspiring to perfection, which I've always done with my writing since I was 16 years old. And I had years of like dire poverty where I still was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so when you're talking about like this image of the successful, like dominant person, I was thinking how I love representations of like the person who really wants it, but who's not getting it. Like, the dad character in little miss sunshine who's like trying to start his own self-help movement and like you can just tell it's not gonna happen for him right but like i'm so touched by those people because i do think it's i do think having something you're passionate about it and trying to get better at it can be really rewarding i agree it can become kind of sociopathic when we like exclude all other interests or, um, or just the emotional tenor of the competitiveness can become problematic past a certain point and, and self-destructive. Like you gotta, at some point it becomes too much, right? Like if you let yourself get too wound up, I would imagine. Yeah, but, definitely. But it can also, I think, um, give you like energy, you know, I think it's something that can, like, I sort of envy it. I'm like, God, I wish I had that. Like, I don't know how I got to get myself worked up. Got to get pissed off or something. Go ahead. I feel like I want to interject um, with Eve Babbitts here. Um, have you read? Yeah, like famous LA. Um, yeah, scribe. because in a way, you know, she's often been presented, and she even kind of considered herself the anti Joan Didion. You know, they were writing at the same time. Uh, Joan even helped her get published for the first time, I think. She connected her with an editor at Rolling Stone. But Eve has always, uh, her voice is really casual and breezy and, oh, you know, I'm I'm a writer, sort of, but I'm also these other things. But yet she really, 
has this brilliant voice and very singular and charismatic and um I don't know it's just interesting that these two she she's someone who I was very fascinated with for a while and, and seems like less austere and maybe less like she's was definitely not competitive um she probably would have been more competitive you know about dating who she dated yeah exactly um but she, but she's had a resurgence lately. Yeah, I feel like there's been like, and didn't she publish a book recently, or um, maybe there was a reissue? Yeah, well, it's a. I think it's unpublished works. Got it. That just came out, and including an essay about her, the fire that that scarred her and her time in the hospital, which was, I couldn't. I actually could not finish that essay. Did you guys read it? No, not yet. Whoa. Just grim. About being on the burn ward oh, for like man. months with third degree burns and Oof. terrible. Um, what but, about other Los Angeles? Cause I was just thinking, uh, you know, for some reason, when you mentioned Eve Babbitt's, I thought of my entree to Joan Didion, which I never, uh, expressed earlier when you guys were talking about how you came to her work. I think Brett Easton Ellis, I think reading him or reading interviews with him, talking about how big of an influence she was on him. Cause he's an LA kid. Um, mm-hmm. he was here not too long ago and he was raised in the Valley. And so I think as somebody coming to California from the Midwest and you know, it's a, exotic to me, I was sort of trying to follow breadcrumbs and, uh, I was like, well, well, if, if Joan Didion was such a big deal to him, then I got to check this out. I think that was how I stumbled into the first essay collection. Mm. Um, and you can see the influence in his work that she has for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I partly fell in love with Los Angeles through the writing of Janet Fitch, who's since become a friend. And I just loved White Oleander so much. And she's a native to Los Angeles who um, I think she also wants to understand the city and writes love letters to the city that can be very dark, but... Um, really get at a lot of what's wonderful about being here. I think it's totally normal and noble to write about a place and to try to understand it through that writing. But I don't think LA or maybe any place, but LA seems especially unknowable to me. Do you guys feel that way? I mean, can you wrap your head around this place? It's just such a jumble. I kind of can. I love it. Yeah, I can. can. (laughs) I'm outnumbered. I mean, it's... How can you truly know a giant sprawling city? But, you know, I think being a writer and living in Los Angeles, that's kind of what you try to do. Yeah. If you're writing something that relates to Los Angeles. If if I'm being honest, the way that I move around this city, like if you were to somehow get like a video feed of me when I'm by myself, either driving around or like on on the metro or whatever... I think there's probably like a look of like semi confusion on my face at all times, like just wondering, like, where are these people going? What is it? Like, what is this person? Like, nobody's really working. Everyone's at a cafe or, um, I don't know. I guess I find this place, uh, hard to grasp and, um, overwhelming a little bit. I think if you're trying to grasp it as one place, then that's going to be challenging. 
versus looking at it as many different places. I think that's why I like it, because after 20 years, if I'm using Waze or something, I'm like, where am I? And how have I never been in this canyon before or on this weird freeway? Yes. Um, And that's exciting to me. Me too. I do like that part of it. Like, I think maybe there would be a sense of boredom that could set in if, I mean, I don't know. There's also a sense of intimacy and there is a joy in like knowing every nook and cranny of a place, but it is kind of awesome to have been here like two decades and to be like, never seen this before. (laughs) Never seen like 95% of it really. If I'm, you know, like the only people I think who see Los Angeles in any kind of comprehensive way are like Uber drivers. So you find that alienating and I find that like super seductive. And I, I just have to say that I think this essay collection slouching towards Los Angeles is really illuminating to, to people who, who are confused by Los Angeles. It just offers these different slices of life and intimate windows into places and ideas that define this city. I mean, you can, you get an inside look at Brentwood and Malibu and well, San Francisco is not in Los Angeles, but you know, Hollywood. But I mean, there are a few essays that talk about the alienation of Los Angeles. And maybe that's something that, that you experience. Maybe I'm just, a, maybe I'm just alienated on a in deep general. level. Yeah. You're, you see, you see the hedges. Okay, guys, Brad's the, a mess. The tall hedges. And we see what's behind the hedges. Yeah. I'm now, but I'm also flashing when you said Malibu, I was flashing to that uh, essay where the guy's talking about the coyotes running away with his daughter's dog. Yeah. Mark Weingarten. Um, I think that we should mention the, if we're talking about the appeal of Joan Didion in particular with respect to Los Angeles, I think the fact that she's mapping this place that pretty much everyone the world over has context for through entertainment is a a point that needs to be made. Like Los Angeles, unlike just about any other place lives in the imagination of us all because, uh, so many like films and television shows have been filmed here. And so it's kind of this place that everybody feels like they know, even if they've never been here before. And so to have somebody of Joan Didion's, uh, stature and ability as a writer and a thinker doing the work of dissecting it for you, you know, that's a big part of the reason why it resonates, I think. Right. I mean, well, I also think too, like not to pat ourselves on the backs too much, but I think that when we all moved here, you know, I only moved here 13 years ago, but it was still a pretty radical thing to do. If you weren't trying to be an actor or to be in Hollywood, like if you wanted to be a writer and a thinker, um, people on the East coast had a lot of attitude about it. And that was one of the things I loved. And I think that's what brought me back to Joan's writing when I first got here, what made me you know, find other more contemporary writers like Janet Fitch was, it felt like this little secret we were in on and that was so delicious. And I'm trying not to get cranky about how many more people have arrived in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. in the meantime. Well, I was going to say that's kind of a trend thing, right? The New York to LA migration. Didn't I want to say I read about that in the LA times or somewhere. You've probably read about it like 15 times in the New York times. My favorite recently was a story where they discover echo park and call it the Brooklyn of Boston, (laughs) which like, what does that mean? I don't even know. By the way, I feel like what Highland isn't Highland park. Now the Brooklyn, that's the Brooklyn of Boston. It's the Brooklyn of New York. Yes. Echo Park is the Brooklyn of Boston. 
I'm baffled. I have no idea how to even parse that. Exactly. I missed that. Yeah. How did the copy editor miss that? It, I, I Does mean, that mean anything? Wait, did you guys all live in New York? Yeah. Every single one of you? No, I'm married to a New Yorker, but I did something more radical than they did. I moved here from San Francisco. Okay. And that's a much bigger thing to explain to your local friends. friends. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I was just talking on the last episode to my buddy Milo, who's from San Francisco. Like, San Francisco hates L.A. More than L.A. hates San Francisco, I think. L.A. doesn't hate San Francisco. No. We don't think about it. And that's when I, what I realized when I got down here. I'm like, what is the problem? And by the way, these are like, and like the whole New York, like the Brooklyn, L.A. or New York, L.A. back and forth, the East Coast, West Coast. I'm like, really? Like, I can't take pride in a place. I don't know if I have that in me to be like, my city's better than your city. Like, <laughs> I'm not going there. Well, I actually moved here from Boston, which is a very tribal city. And right. there were great things about my time in Boston, but I never was in love with Boston. And then when I met Los Angeles, I literally fell in love with Los Angeles. And it was the first place I ever lived where I really had that. And I had lived in Portland, Oregon before, which is a city that gives people... A lot of those feels. Should I move yeah. there? Should I raise my children there? No, you should not. Okay. Um, should I? Because like I go over this in my head on a daily basis. Like, should I, I? I'm kind of a hippie, even though I don't look like one. I love like nature. Like, should I just move to maybe the Ashland, Oregon? I, right out of college, thought I was going to move to Ashland. Drove up there, had a job offer from an ad agency in Medford, Oregon. I was like so green and I just could not pull the trigger because I went up there in the winter and it was like heroin weather and it was gray and just, I, I didn't know a soul and I think I just chickened out, but it was there or Flagstaff, Arizona. And then I just wound up going back to Boulder and, you know, I don't know, I couldn't do it, but Ashland's lovely. They have a great Shakespeare festival. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't even know. We were talking about what Boston and tribal and, you know, falling in love with LA are you in love with LA? Very much so. You love it, Steffi? Yeah, no, I had the same experience that Sarah did when I moved here. It was, I did. I felt like I was in love. But yeah. if, we, if we're using Joan as like a proxy, like when are we all moving to New York City? Like, isn't because she left. She yo-yoed. There's a there's a famous story she tells about the year she left Los Angeles, which was 1988, and moved back to New York, and she came here to cover the convention and she said she was driving from LAX to South Central crying because it was so beautiful and if you know that's that stretch of road is not exactly the most picturesque <laughs> but that is how much she loved Los Angeles and I guess at that moment regretted leaving but she's mm. still i mean she came back pretty regularly yeah i feel like people like move to new york because they're like i just want to be real i just want like some grittiness in my life i need some realness and some soul in a city that's got a history and then people come to la because they're like quality of life is horrible i'm tired of people peeing on the subway or what you know what i'm saying like like what do people come to la for they want sunshine and like a lawn and like a suburban existence inside of a mega city, like nature, the beach, a Netflix yeah. deal. <laughs> I just want to be in a room on a Netflix yeah. show. And maybe I guess like-minded people, you know, I do like the thing I love about Los Angeles is 
I think I'm most touched, even though I have my problems with it, by the fact that the creative arts are the business. Like, it's a company town, and that's very unique. I, like, there's no other city in the world that the creative arts are the business in mm -hmm. town. Um, and so I, I also like the fact that you can be and do just about anything in this, in this place and tell people, and it's not going to throw them in the way that I remember telling people I wanted to be a writer back when I lived in like Boulder and Denver and people just would look at you sort of askance, you know, like what, you know, but here you could be, you know, my joke is like, you could be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a carnival and people would be like, Oh, which one, you know, like <laughs> you can sort of get away with that a little bit, um, more so here. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think I've been in this city so long and I, if, you know, if you start to add it up, I spend like 90, some odd percent of my life here. I don't travel that much, you know, so I don't, you can lose perspective after a while when you've been inside of it. Um, maybe if I left, I would suddenly see it more clearly and not have as many feelings of wondering whether I should leave. I don't know. <laughs> do you guys, uh, spend most of your, I mean, you obviously spend most of your life here, but do you get out a lot and get perspective? I mean, I go back to the East coast a couple of times a year yeah, and, it's funny what you just said. Uh, you know, my mom has asked me, oh, are you ever going to move back to Maine, which is where I grew up? And it's so beautiful there. And there's so much that's great about it. But I find the people very judgmental. And uh, I always joke, like, in LA, you can be like, I do a lot of yoga. And everyone's like, great. Or you're like, I do a lot of cocaine. And everyone's like, great. Or you're like, <laughs> I do I a just... lot of cocaine while doing yoga. Yeah. Personal. How's that going for you? Yeah. Is it better class? Yeah. <laughs> and people are just really curious. And like, yeah. oh, I found this new UFO cult that's really working for me. And people are, I just, I, and, and I feel like. I remember when I first moved here, people would say, Oh, they're just trying to use you. And they're just, and I was like, I have nothing like they're just being nice. And I think <laughs> they're just sort of curious. It's just sort of, and I do think so much culture has come out of San Francisco and out of LA because people are like, yeah, I'll try that. I'll try spinning. Well, I guess soul cycle started in New York, but I mean, there's so much culture has come out of California, not just arts culture, but lifestyle every, everybody culture. has an opinion yeah. on, on it. Like, uh, I was just talking to my parents about this We, you know, family members are just like, what's it like in California? Cause you know, they're seeing like the homelessness crisis, which is a very real thing on TV. And I think if you're seeing Los Angeles or California culture refracted through the lens of like mainstream press or Fox news, you know, something like that, it's going to inform your opinion of it. But, um, yeah, everybody has like, my joke is like people who have never even been here before love to tell you how much they can't stand it here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, um, so I guess, I mean, I think we've covered like a lot of ground. Um, and I guess I would ask if there, is there anything I missed that you wish I would have asked about or talked about with respect to Joan and this collection? Um, I know we've been all over the place, but speak now or forever hold your peace. Steffi, I can see that you're considering. And while you are, I'm just going to say like one non sequitur that came to me mm. somewhere between Joan Didion and like contemporary branding. And like, <laughs> I was thinking if Joan Didion had sold that dress that she's wearing in that picture in uh -huh. front of the Corvette, I would have totally bought one of those dresses mm -hmm. if I could have had like the Joan Didion dress. Sure. It would, would be you? like the D label. Yeah. You know, yeah. G label goop. 
That's right. <laughs> it's going to be coming from Goop at some point. They're going to sell it. It's partly because she had such great style, but I think it, that's also the jokes on me that like there was this little part of me as well, a young writer. Look good on you. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet, honey. <laughs> I but, wouldn't have bought that dress. <laughs> but I think just that there's this idea of like, how do I be a writer? Oh, if I get this dress or if I smoke cigarettes or I mean, that's gone out of vogue now, but there were things that used to be associated with being a writer. And so or almost like talisman or, um, you know, good luck charms that could help you. And so, yeah, I would have. I would have bought Joan's brand. Well, people are buying Joan's brand, you know, her being the face of Celine. Oh, that's so true. I had forgotten that. Wait, what is this? Yeah. Celine, the French house, uh, because Joan is so associated with like the sunglasses and being so chic, she was, what year was that? A few years ago? Three years? 2015, I think. She was the face of Celine with the big glasses. Oh, right. Currently. So you guys think she has she has great style? She's certainly memorable. I, it's, uh, a, it's a it's iconic, you know. She has a signature. She has a signature style. How do you have great style? Some people just got it. It's like being a good cook. Like you just know what to put on. I, I have. I I think that's very much true of her cooking. I mean, it was it was aesthetic. It was good taste in every sense. And so for people who just like she just naturally knew what would look. I don't know. Like how does somebody, she also had kind of a uniform. I mean, that's part of style. I mean, that makes me think of like Andy Warhol and just this idea of like, you put on a certain thing and you're really stubborn about it. And eventually people come around to you. Like, you know, a lot of Andy Warhol was like wearing a tie and things that were like very much going against the counterculture at a certain point, but it became not to mention his wigs. (laughs) Yes. His wigs, of course. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I can, uh, I feel a sense of uh, familiarity or, or affection for the idea of a uniform because I, I mean, you're looking at it right now, <laughs> wearing sweatpants every day. But I don't like to think about what I'm going to wear. That stresses me out. Where I'm like, oh, I got to pick an outfit. I like to just go. I think Obama did this, where he was like, I have like two or three suits on rotation. He's like, I have so many decisions that I've got to make in my day. Do you like how I'm comparing myself to the commander in chief? My life is too much for me. I was thinking instead of the sweatpants. instead of the denim tuxedo, you have the sweatpant tuxedo. <laughs> just, <laughs> I like to dress for comfort, um, but I like the idea of like oh I want to put this on to be noticed is totally alien to me. I want to blend. I don't want anybody looking at me. If I go into uh, a physical public space, that like people who can like put on these outfits where it's like whoa like who is that. Uh, that to me is incredible and some people can pull it off, but personally, like I, I want to, uh, be anonymous and blend to the point that like, when I first moved to uh, Colorado years ago, I was from Indiana at that point. So like, I was like baseball hat and I look like a kid from Indiana within like three months. I was like wearing a fleece and growing my hair out. I just wanted to be like whoever, like just blend me in. I don't want to stand out. And then I moved to LA and now I'm not wearing athleisure wear like every other <laughs> jackass. Well, yeah, Joan has said that she, she did dress to blend in, you know, she didn't want to be noticed and her diminutive physical stature right. also helped her sort of, and that threw threw people off and they didn't realize that she was listening as intently as she was, you know? Right. No, that's like, a, I mean, for somebody who, um, is, a what, investigative journalist or somebody who's there to observe, Mm -hmm. I think to not have an imposing physical stature 
is an advantage, you know, because uh, she's able to sort of uh, slink back and she's like fairly soft spoken. Uh, You guys obviously saw the Joan Didion documentary. Mm -hmm. I found it hard to watch if I'm being totally honest. I didn't love it. What didn't you love? I don't know. I just was like, I guess I just didn't, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I didn't enjoy the movie. <laughs> I like her. I like her writing, but I just, I didn't love the way that it was put together. Well, I do think it's interesting because I think Heather, you were sort of pointing towards like this idea of like whether Joan had social anxiety and she writes pretty candidly about like what you might call like mental illness. I mean, mm-hmm. with her medical reports in some of her essays. And so I do think it's interesting too. Like we're really like lionizing her, which she totally deserves, but there also was a lot of frailty and a lot of places where things didn't entirely add up. And I think in the documentary, some of that was laid bare. I found it pretty illuminating. I feel like a dick now for saying that I didn't like it. It was hard to watch. There are parts that, uh, I mean, when she's talking about her marriage and what John was like, I found mm. that pretty yeah, uncomfortable. He was, he was a hothead and he got mad about everything. You know, you just kind of imagine that scenario and it's not pretty. Heather, did you like it? I did like it. Um, you know, talking about their relationship, I, what stuck with me was anytime they showed archival clips of the two of them, she her body language was completely deferential to him. Hmm. Um, even though she was the much better writer. I found that when she was on camera talking, it was hard for me. It was very, she was very like, uh, she was gesturing a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember? Yes. I mean, so maybe that was the part of it where I was focused. I was, I think maybe I was so focused on that, that I lost. I do think that, um, I think she was really, really, wanting to be honest with her nephew, you know, who made the film. Yeah. I do feel like, um, those gestures, she was kind of reaching and just really trying to remember the moment and give a clear answer. And it's so hard. And like, by the way, I can think of few things like that would be more difficult for me than to have a camera in my face and to try to be like summing up my life. Um, I feel like I could feel her discomfort and maybe that was, I was somehow like responding to that when I was watching it. But, uh, I think it's totally understandable, uh, to try to have any clarity on things that happened even like last week, let alone decades ago is super hard. And I guess there's like, there, there's some tension here that I'm feeling between what I, what I find from her on the page where she's, she can be incredibly assertive and like defined and like she takes this stand and like, you know, you respond to it and um, it's like you follow her, you know, because she seems to Mm -hmm. know what she thinks versus me who I I have like an innate mistrust of almost everything I think. And every time I say anything with a lot of conviction, I'm already starting to like hate myself for things I've said in this conversation where I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe I came out so boldly on, the documentary, you know, or whatever it is, <laughs> I will pick apart anything I say. I never fully believe anything I think. <laughs> I don't have. Is that a problem? Do I need a shrink? Is that a problem? <laughs> I don't know. Do you guys have? Any, do you guys understand what I'm saying? And do you have a similar feeling, or do you have a different feeling? It's funny because I, 
I don't know if I said this earlier, but I realized that I also, like Joan Didion, write to understand what I'm thinking. Like, I am not good at sort of offering, like summing something up just off the cuff. I need, I need to write it down. And once I do, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like using a different part of the brain and suddenly I'm like, oh, that's what it is. Yeah. You get clarity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I do that in writing, but yeah, speaking of, you know, what we've said in this conversation, I'm like, oh, but back. I feel like, yeah. And I feel like for people, I, I see this all the time with people that I have on the show. A lot of people who are writerly by nature to have a conversation like this off the cuff and to not be able to self-edit is torture because you lose control of the narrative and you <laughs> wind up saying things. But writers are control freaks. And so I'm going to spend the next week or more spiraling about this afternoon, though I'm very grateful <laughs> to you for having me just, on this. I'm glad I was able to traumatize all three of you. <laughs> But if it's any, if it's any, should we start a group text uh, yeah. where we just like pick it apart? No. And uh... if it's any consolation, I'm in all of these, basically doing what I just did for the past hour and change. So, if anyone you know is uh, you know has mud on his face, it's me. After 600 and some odd episodes of this, but um, I think that the, I guess the Steffi to to your point about being able to sort things out in writing, which makes perfect sense, and to you know to find solace in that and to use that as an exercise to try to really uh, winnow down um, all of the static or winnow away all of the static and to get down to some essential truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of the point. I think for me, that's why we're writers. Right. Yeah. And I think for me, sometimes the struggle is that my thoughts are always changing and I can always like pull another thread and go, well, wait, uh. and but so that's I, what Joan did. And, but but it, on the other hand, on the know. other hand, like you have to be able to intuit when you have reached some sort of terminus or you have to get to the point where you can take a stand. And I think maybe I struggle with that more than Joan. And maybe be okay with contradicting yourself. Like even in different pieces that she wrote, she might've been uh, on different stages of the spectrum of how she felt about culture or what was happening. Yeah. Um, well, I have enjoyed this. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having um, I, us. And you know, just for people listening, uh, if you are a fan of Joan Didion or if you are new to her work, I think either way, this anthology is a great. It's either a great primer and a great like w- like a door into her work. Um, I also think it is a great thing to read if uh, her work has affected you, because uh, for me anyway. It helped me better understand why it gave me like a deeper appreciation, um, for it, for Los Angeles, um, for sixties cultural history, which I'm a sucker for, um, and just for the importance of good writing in general. So kudos uh, to you, Steffi, for the work that you did in editing the anthology and wrangling all these writers, Sarah, Heather, congratulations on uh, your excellent contributions. And I just really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, you guys, being good sports and entertaining all of my questions and um, what is it? Public neuroses. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Steffi Nelson, Heather John Fogarty, and Sarah Tomlinson, all of whom are contributors to the uh, essay anthology Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light. 
It is available from Rare Bird Books. It is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get your copy. It is excellent. If you would like to uh, write to me, if you have a thought or a story or uh, a reaction, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget that the Other People podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a good app. It's available where you get apps. It's free. It's a free app. If you would like to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, you can do that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Once again, uh, the book is called Slouching Towards Los Angeles. I like the, I like the visual that that conjures of somebody just slouching as they move in the direction of Los Angeles. Uh, I got to say, I feel a little bit discombobulated still after the holidays. I think it's the travel. I don't normally travel at the holidays. And then the fact that we did two trips, like back to back, it's a lot. Like one trip with kids is a lot. Two trips back to back with like a two-day interregnum, if I'm using that word properly, a two-day break in the middle. It's just, you know, I feel a bit overwhelmed. And then now I'm going to travel again. It's out of control. So... Uh, let me warn you one more time that next week's episode may be a little bit off schedule as well. It may be a little late in coming. I'm still sorting things out, trying to get it situated. Uh, bear with me. Bear with me. This is, I think, the longest hiatus that I've taken from the show, maybe in its existence. I podcasted right before Christmas, and now I'm back in almost mid-January. So it's like I've got to get back into it. Got to sharpen my skills. My podcast, my podcast, my podcast skills. (laughs) 